Over the weekend, July 29th, 2021, marked the centennial, the 100-year anniversary of Hitler's rise to power. Now, the terrifying news for you and I in 2021 is that the path that we are walking on today as a globe has an eerie resemblance to the path that gave way to Hitler and Nazi Germany coming to power and all of the horrific atrocities that Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future, episode 245, August 1st, 2021. And this past weekend, we missed it. The 100-year anniversary of Hitler being elected to the National Socialist Party. Now, now a lot of people frame the Nationalist Socialist Party as being on the right or alt-right or ultra-conservative. One thing to note about the Nationalist Socialist Party is the word socialist. Within that party, they did not hold on to the, the belief that the individual is a supreme expression of the state, but they were a collectivist group. They believed in top-down approaches. They believed that the government should solve all of the problems. They were not looking to the individual, but they're saying the state will solve all the problems. Now, the context that gave rise to Nazi Germany and gave rise to Hitler being elected for the first time in 1921 was the Spanish flu of 1918. And as we all know, we are in a somewhat repeat of the Spanish flu, very different, but it's still having a global, global effect, if not a bigger global economic effect than the Spanish flu due to globalization. But that Spanish flu was one of the, a a big driver that we'll be talking about in the beginning of this episode that led to a society that wanted to adopt collective ideologies, to to adopt adopt ideologies that would keep them safe from the other, that would keep them safe from the stranger, that would keep them safe from the, the perils of the world, because the world is a dangerous, dangerous place. Now, in 1931, Hitler had an interview with, with Richard Breiting, and in this interview, he, he said this, the good of the community takes priority of that over the individual, but the state should remain and retain control. Every owner should feel himself to be an agent of the state. It is, it is his duty not to misuse his possessions to the detriment of the state or the interests of his fellow countrymen. That is the overriding point. The Third Reich will always retain the right to control property owners. This was the fundamental belief that Hitler would repeat time and time again, that the individual is an agent of the state, not the state an agent of the individual. And this is an important, important thing to lay, a foundation piece to lay at the beginning of this episode, because traditionally people think of Nazi Germany as being far right or alt-right or ultra-conservative. When, as on today's standards, if you look at the conservative movement, 
one of the foundational ideas in the conservative movement is that the state is an agent of the individual and the individual has the supreme right and the individual's rights should be protected before the collective. But Nazi Germany was the opposite. They moved far, far into collectivism and collective thinking. And this is what we're seeing with progressivism right now in the West. Progressivism and uh, the left is all about the group. It is all about the group's identity. Now, Lawrence Reed wrote this article in the Foundation for Economic Education where he's, he's talking about Hitler's rise to power. He's talking about some of the, the factors that led up to Hitler coming into power and the underlying worldview behind Hitler's Germany and Nazi Germany. The, the leading worldview was not capitalism. It was not personal liberties and freedoms, but instead it was socialism. It was the state will and should control everything that you own everything that you have, and as this quote says, the overriding point of the Third Reich will always retain the right to control the property owners. The government will always have control over your business, what you do, the way you spend your money, how you price your goods. It is top-down control. Both On both sides of the political spectrum, can lead and lend itself to this. But in the middle is where we find what has been classically termed as liberalism or libertarianism, where it says that each individual has their own autonomy, has their own agency. Now, classically in the past, that was a position that was more on the left, that individual freedom was something that was more on the left. But we have seen as the progressive have, have pushed further and further, pushing their ideologies, they have become more and more group think and become more and more afraid of outside ideas, more and more censorialship and, and canceling ideas that contradict or that might challenge their worldview. In, in many essence, the progressive movement as from my from my standards of view, from what I see, is becoming more and more of a conservative movement. Conservative in the fact of isolating itself from outside ideas, isolating itself in echo chambers, and isolating itself and saying, if you are on the outside, if you are not like us, if you do not hold our political ideas, then you are dangerous, and we should isolate and punish you. We should segregate you away from society because you could harm society. Well, Lawrence Reed writes that Lenin, Mao, Pol Pot, Castro, Hitler, and Mussolini were all anti-capitalist peas in the same socialist collective pod, meaning that all of these dictators were all anti-capitalists and are all socialists. The argument that is made about fascism is that it's rooted in capitalism. But when we look at fascists like Mussolini or Hitler, we can see that their ideas, their ideology is rooted in socialism. Lawrence writes, they all claim to be socialists. They all sought to concentrate the power of the state and to glorify the state. 
They stomped on individuals who wanted nothing more than to pursue their own ambitions of peaceful commerce. They all degraded private property, either by outright seizure or regulation, or regulating it to serve the purpose of the state. These, these leaders, these dictators, these fascists, were not about capitalism. They were not about free markets. They were about controlling markets. They were about controlling everything from the top down. In, after World War I, which ended November 11th, 1918, we saw the Spanish flu come onto the scene and it ravaged Europe, it ravaged Germany, and it ravaged America. Now, there are studies that have been done between the connection between parasite stress in a region or parasite stress among uh, a population group and their tendency towards both conservative, which is protecting and isolating and collectivist ideas. I heard this clip. It's been, this interview has been floating around on the, the interworld of Instagram and YouTube. And this is an interview that Dr. Jordan Peterson did with Dr. Randy Thorne, who has been studying parasitic stress levels and their effect on the social political viewpoints. Here is Dr. Randy Thorne. You know, if you take measures of parasite stress across the world, uh, countries or states in the United States or whatever, that that will correspond to conservative or collectivist values. Measured by um, measured by political scientists, these measures and put in the literature for countries and states. Measures of by psychologists of individualism, collectivism, put into the literature. So we pull those data and look for the predictive relationship between parasite stress and uh, conservatism and liberalism, and found uh, what we expected, and strongly so. The more parasites, the more conservative. Said differently, the more parasites, the more collectivists. The more parasites, the more conservative. The more parasites, the more collectivists. Why? Why is that? Well, in in communities and societies where there are a lot of parasites, there are a few different factors that come in. One, we when we have infectious diseases, we want to draw closer to our family, to our support system, because if we get sick, we need to defend ourselves, we need to protect ourselves, and our family is a support system that can help us if we get sick to help us recover. The other thing with parasites, even when you look at TB, is that different strains of TB or of parasites can form in closed collective communities, even within the same city. So with TB, for example, in one city, you can have three or four different pockets of communities that have different strains of tuberculosis, of TB, which is a highly infectious and, and highly deadly disease, if not treated. It's totally treatable, but it's also very deadly if it goes untreated. Well, before there was treatment for TB, people would isolate themselves within their community and they would develop a natural immunity to the strand of TB that was going on within their community. But the moment that they moved outside of their community, of their neighborhood, and interacted with other close-knit groups of people, the vector 
of transmission went up and their danger level went up and they could then contract TB and bring that new strand back to their community, causing illness and sickness. So over time, people subconsciously realize that the outsider, someone outside of my known family and community is dangerous because they could be a carrier, a vector of this disease. So that causes people to be more closed and it causes people to tend towards a collectivist viewpoint of looking, taking care of the whole and making sure that the whole is protected in the midst of this viral strain. And the, the converse is true, that where there were low risk or, or situations in society where there was not a lot of viruses, there's not a lot of parasites. For instance, when we began a better sanitation system of indoor plumbing, when we were able to clean and chlorinate our water and have clean water, people naturally became more liberal. And when I say more liberal, I mean more open to new ideas, more open to travel, more open to talking to other people who didn't look like them, who weren't from their community, who weren't part of their their tight-knit social group. Why? Because it was now safe. Because people weren't worried about catching different diseases that they might bring back to their community. Well, right now, of course, what we're seeing with COVID is people are moving back into protectionism. They were, they, people are afraid of, of picking up a virus, a disease, from someone that they don't know, someone that doesn't look like them, from someone outside of their family community. So many people, not just in America, but across the globe, are, are sticking closer to their family ties, the circles that they know because it's safer. Now, after 1918 with the Spanish flu, there was a hard swing to collectivism and conservatism in Nazi Germany, and they were the Third Reich kept crazy data. They were data fanatics. They recorded all of these data tablets, uh, tables, and so we have this record of them. So uh, social scientists have gone back and studied the correlation between the amount of deaths in a city from the Spanish flu and from tuberculosis and the amount of votes that Nazi Germany, uh, the, the, the National Socialist Party received and Hitler received during uh, the, this critical time of Hitler's rise to power. Here is Dr. Randy Thorne talking about this uh, shocking correlation. A recent study, you'll be interested to know, has looked at infectious disease in uh, German regions, cities, in relation to uh, voting for Nazi for for, for Hitler's party, so these data these data uh, have number of votes uh, in these different cities for the uh, Nazi party. They have the number of votes for the Communist Party and number of votes for various things. So the the, the Communist Party was considered extremist then, as was the Nazi Party. Um, and uh, the votes are from, uh, let's see, the years 1930 to 1933, I think. So the critical years. 
uh, for the rise of uh, for really Nazism to get big there. And uh, the more the more people dying from the Spanish flu in 1918 to 1920 in a city, the greater the vote for the Nazi party in 1930 to 33. That it, when I heard this, I was shocked. The more people that died, the more deaths that a city saw from the Spanish flu or from TB, it correlated directly to more votes for an extremist uh, conservative. And when I say conservative, I don't mean conservative as in, as in what we would tend to think of conservative ideas today, but closed off group think identities and, and policies today. And so all of this then led to more conservative ideas and more collectivist ideas. And it also led, because of everything that was happening, it led to hyper-cleanliness and hyper-disgust. Now, Mussolini, who is also rising to power at the same time as Hitler as a fascist, they even, in Italy, they even banned handshaking as they found it disgusting and a vector of transmission. There was a headline from April 15th 1928, the New York Times ran this headline. It says, Handshake meets its doom in Italy. Fascismo finds that it is an unhygienic custom that should be replaced by germ-proof Roman salutes. And goes on to talk about how American has a horrible example of, of handshakes. They were so hyper-cleanly. They were so... Uh, germ adverse because they were afraid they were afraid of what those germs would do they were afraid of what those germs would bring to their society now this all then flows over to deeper worldviews and deeper ways of viewing the world it, it led to xenophobia because if the person across the way from you, the person in the community across town could be carrying a vector of disease. If you're not supposed to shake hands, if you shouldn't trust your neighbor, if your neighbor could carry a vector of disease, as they are saying in places like Australia right now, if that is the truth, well, then, yeah, we should hunker down. We should protect our borders. We should make sure that no one is able to get in. We should have a top-down solution because us as individuals, we don't know what is safe or what isn't safe. We don't know who we can and can't trust. So we're going to give our power over to the government because we are staying at home. Why are we staying at home? Because outside is dangerous, because people are dangerous. Here is a clip from 2017, Jordan Peterson giving a lecture talking about how, how Hitler was had such disgust and and contempt. He 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 wanted everything to be ultra cleanly, and how that actually then morphed and formed into these xenophobic genocidal ideologies. One of the things about Hitler was that he was very disgust sensitive and a lot of his hatred for non-Aryans. So imagine inside the Aryan box, it was all uniform. Outside, it was all parasites and predators. Now, now disgust sensitive, I need to, to add, he, he's talking about the big five, a psychometric test where it, it's, it's one of the most standardized tests to measure personality of, of openness or closeness, um, introvertism or extrovertism. And one of them is, uh, is uh, 
disgust versus, uh, well, I guess it's, it's more along the lines of being conscientious, wanting everything to be orderly, wanting everything to be just so. And with that, if you want everything to be just so, you have high levels of disgust if something is unclean or if, or if someone is unclean. So it's important to know the, the context in which Jordan is, is speaking in, in this clip here. And so, and that was a manifestation of disgust, not of fear. It's a whole different thing. And if you read Hitler's table talk, which is a collection of his spontaneous dinner speeches from 1939 to 1942. It's a very interesting book. You see that his metaphor for the Aryan race was a body, a pure body, unassaulted by parasites or predators, and that he was trying to erect a border around it to keep all of that away. Now remember, th this is all happening post-1918, post the Spanish flu, where there's been this explosion of death and parasites and a flu, and, and they have been pushing for cleansing and health protocols to keep the collective, to keep the German body safe. So it's an immunological disgust-like metaphor. And there's some recent work that was published in PLOS One about three years ago, showing that brilliant study, should have got much more attention, showing that if you went around and, and, and sampled political attitudes in different countries, or even within the same country, what you found was that the higher the prevalence of infectious diseases, the higher the probability of totalitarian political attitudes at the local level. And you can- That's an important bit. Listen to this again. Or even within the same country, what you found was that the higher the prevalence of infectious diseases, the higher the probability of totalitarian political attitudes at the local level. And you can imagine, well, what happens if there's infectious diseases is you want to put borders around everything. You don't want free movement between ideas or people because that's partly how the disease spreads. You're going to have much more strict sexual rules, for example, because that's a great way for diseases to be transmitted. And before Hitler went on his rampage against the non-Aryans, he cleaned up all the factories. Like he went in there and fumigated them. It was part of the law. He went on a public health campaign to get rid of tuberculosis and he got rid of the bugs in the factories as well. And he used so b before we go on with this clip, notice what's happening right now across the globe. We have highly infectious diseases. That means that we're, we're seeing, we're in the midst of seeing a trend towards totalitarianism because people want to keep the group, the collective safe. And with that, we're seeing places like in the UK where they pass laws saying you, you can't have sexual relations with other people. They, they pass laws saying you can't visit your family. You can't visit other people. They're putting boundaries around everything. Now, the UK isn't exactly the most conservative place on earth. If you look at their, the, how liberal they are in, in their policies, they're quite liberal. If you look in, in places in America, like New York or California, which are some of the most liberal states, you see that they're taking the most uh, conservative, putting borders around everything, borders around communication, borders around information, that anything that is outside of their borders is now deemed misinformation or disinformation. This all... We're going to go back to this clip. As you can see, Hitler then took what was happening 
took his disgust and they began to go on public health campaigns. They began to purify and cleanse factories and schools. For diseases to be transmitted. And before Hitler went on his rampage against the non-Aryans, he cleaned up all the factories. Like he went in there and fumigated them. It was part of the law. He went on a public health campaign to get rid of tuberculosis and he got rid of the bugs in the factories as well. And he used Zyklon B. That's an insecticide and that's the gas that he used in the gas chambers eventually. So first it was the bugs in the rats and then it was people who were, then it was euthanasia. That was the next move and forced euthanasia. And the, the rationale for that was compassion, by the way, just so you all know. It's so to, to recap what Jordan's saying here, the path that Hitler went on was we're going to purify the land. We're going to purify the factories. We're going to get rid of the bugs. We're going to get rid of the rats. We're going to get rid of uh, TB. And they used a, a pesticide, Cyclone B, which is the very thing that they used in the gas chambers to genocide millions of Jews. And then from there, he said, it moved on to euthanasia out of compassion. We're going to euthanize people with Down syndrome. We're going to euthanize the old. We're going to euthanize the disabled because it's compassionate. It's compassionate. The same arguments, the same things we are seeing today. Arguments in society saying euthanasia is compassionate. We should have it. It is compassionate. We just covered this in the previous episode. It is compassionate to abort your child. It is the most loving thing that you can do. We, we talked about this in episode 244. Goes on. It's, it's merciful to put these people who are burdensome to themselves and their families and the state who are living second-rate lives. It's merciful to euthanize them. And that, that is the, the, the exact argument that we're hearing when it comes to abortion, that it's merciful that these, these children that are being aborted, they're going to be, they're going to be burdensome to themselves. They're going to be burdensome to their family. They're just going to be burdensome to their states. They're not going to have a, a good life. It's actually merciful and compassionate to abort these babies. That was a huge campaign in Germany. It was after that, that the, the more racial purifications began. And so that's the disgusting, that's unbelievably important. Well, that's where we are today. This is the beginnings of that same movement, yet on a global scale due to globalization that we're seeing today. The question is, will we stem this tide? Will uh, ideas of liberalism, it's really ideas of liberalism, will they uh, succeed? Will they win out over, over top-down control in, in, in this sort of conservatism that Jordan is describing here? This conservatism that puts the, the group above the individual, which is different from the way that most conservatives would describe their own ideology today. And I, what I see is conservatism is moving and swinging more towards classical liberalism, whereas what was considered liberal 20, 25 years ago has swung to this progressivism that is all about controlling the individual individual it's all about controlling speech it's all about controlling sexual norms it's all about control top down putting the group over the individual control well what does this mean if we are seeing this on a global scale are we going to see 
a shift in the coming years, currently and in the coming years, to more of these collectivism, border-driven, conservative ideas, as, as we saw in Nazi Germany. No, it was 1918, and it wasn't until 10, 20 years later that we really saw the birth and the fruit of those ideas that of the social viewpoint that was formed during the Spanish flu. Well, here it goes back to this, this first interview with Dr. Randy Thorne. So do you think there'll be a swing towards conservative political belief in, across the world because of the because of this pandemic? Will that yeah. shape the political beliefs of, of a and is there, a, is there a crucial period for that to be shaped? So, for example, will this have a bigger effect on, say, 14 to 16 year olds or 16 to 18 year olds who are catalyzing their identity? Would you would, would there be a cohort that's that would be most that's effective? A, that's a really interesting point. And I've thought a lot about it. We don't, there's no there's no there's no data on that. now. So we don't have data now on how in the time frame and what demographics are really going to be shaped by this. But Jordan, in this interview, he brought up another question, which it's the question that I have been thinking. It's why is it that we're seeing across across the globe, it's not just in America, why are we seeing the fact that it is more the left, those who who tend to have more openness to ideas, why are they the ones that are reacting with more conservative or or collectivist ideas versus what we would think, which would be, well, the conservatives would be the ones that are trying to shut the borders. The conservatives would be the ones that are, are trying to mandate the mass and trying to, to force on vaccinations on people. But it's the opposite. It's the liberal side that's seen it. Well, Dr. Randy Thorne, and I disagree with this, he, he thinks, and maybe this is true for America, but he thinks, well, it's because Trump former President Donald Trump, because he was pretty skeptical about some of the COVID stuff early on, that uh, that caused the liberals to swing to the other side and the conservatives to swing to a more liberal standpoint. But I actually think it's different. I think the reason is, is conservatives are are viewing the individual as a supreme and rejecting collectivist ideas because they want their individual freedom as individuals being able to run their businesses, able to run their lives, able to make decisions for themselves, whereas today, liberalism is about collectivism. It is about top-down control. That is their mode of operation. So we're seeing the collectivists across the globe moving towards the control of society from top down. And, that, and, and the reason that I think it's this, that is not because uh, of former President Donald Trump, is because we're seeing it all across the globe. We're seeing it in France. We're seeing it in Australia. We're seeing it in Italy. We're seeing it in Greece. We're seeing it in the UK. We're seeing it across the Middle East. Across the Middle East is a, a place that is generally normally considered very conservative. And, and yet, they have some of the, the highest rates of, of vaccine hesitancy across Middle East, North Africa. Why is that? I think it's because there is a, a new generation that is holding on to and, and stepping into these ideas, these liberalism ideas of 
of capitalism, of free market, of being able to make the, the best choice for them and their family. And so I, I, I reject the notion that it's, oh, it's a pushback against President Donald Trump. At the same time, we are seeing the left and the progressivism, these progressive ideologies becoming more and more totalitarian. They're becoming more and more controlling of the way you live, the way you think. And these are, are, are the dangers that we are seeing within societies that are experiencing pandemics, that are experiencing uh, viral vectors, is that within those communities, totalitarian and totalitarianism rises to the top. And those who were once conservative are now becoming libertarian or liberal and saying, actually, we do not want totalitarianism. We do not want the government controlling our lives and setting arbitrary rules for us. We actually want open borders in that I want the freedom to be able to travel and do business and explore the world. And I want to have that choice to be on me. I don't want that choice being put on me by someone else. And that's where I think the path that we are on. And we'll have to see over the next coming decades, what will the fruit of all of this be and how will society shake itself out of this, this, this worldview? What will happen? Will we see more conservative ideas that are tend to be more libertarian or tend to be more of conservative in the way that we, we say today? Or are we going to see a continual push towards greater totalitarianism, greater uh, collectivist laws and control and borders of society in attempt to control society and make everyone safe. Well, where do all these laws come from? Where do we get laws from? I've been thinking about, about this for a while. Where do, all, all, all of our laws come from the way that we view morality. Each law is based on morality and our worldview of morality. Now, all Ab Abrahamic faiths, as I've been pondering this, with a varying degree, have two, two forms of laws. One set of rules or laws or morality uh, for those who don't hold on to their worldview, and one for those who adhere to their religious worldview. And so we see that with Judaism and Israel, they have a, a secular court for the laws that applies to everyone. And of course, those laws are are informed largely by uh, Judaic worldviews and Judaic uh, writings. And then they have religious courts for matters of marriage and divorce. They have rabbinical courts for Jews, Sharia courts for Muslims and Druze, and ecclesiastical courts for Christians. Now, the, the same thing is in the UAE. They have... Uh, different systems, different courts for Muslims and non-Muslims, ones that operate based more on, based on Sharia law, or Sharia, it just means law, so based on Sharia, and other systems that are for non-Muslims or expats that are based on their, their universal legal system, which has been informed by the Islamic faith. 
Now, in Christianity, we see something different. Now, my reading of the Christian faith probably is going to be different than someone else's. So I'm sure someone's going to leave a comment or message me. It's like, well, not all Christians think that way. But the same thing can be said for the Jewish faith. The same thing can be said for the Islamic faith. There are many different views and expressions of those. So this is my reading of my faith. So in reading it, I see it to be much more Christianity, to be much have a greater tendency towards libertarianism, where the people who are outside the faith should not be judged fully by the moral code within the faith. For instance, we are, we are told in the scriptures not to associate with people who are full-on embracing the lifestyle of sexual immorality, greed, or drunkenness. It says not to even associate with those people who, at the same time, claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. While it also says in the very same passage that that doesn't mean to don't associate with anyone who is sexual immoral, only those who claim to follow the faith but do not actually follow the tenets of the faith. And therefore, the sexual immoral of the world, those who don't adhere to my faith, I'm not barred from engaging with them, from sitting down and having a meal from them, with them. In fact, it's encouraged. It's encouraged for us to interact within the world, but not be of the world. So there, there are clear standards within the Christian faith that apply to those who believe in the faith and those who are outside. And we can't judge those people the same way, because if you don't believe what I believe, well, then why should I expect you to uphold the same level of morality as I? Now, this is where this libertarianism and everything that we're seeing right now, because this ties all the way back to the, the way we view personal choice around things like vaccination. Is, should that be a personal choice? Is that something that depends on your individual liberty? Or is that infringing upon someone else's liberty and therefore it's a collectivist choice and that is able to be forced upon you? These are all questions of morality. When people say, well, you can't legislate morality. Well, these are. Every law is a question of morality and that all comes from where do you derive your morality? What is the source of that? Well, this is very important because when we look at, for instance, issues that we've been talking here, like the trans agenda, there is this moral tension that we must all walk in. Now, the, the Abrahamic faiths, they derive their morality from what Thomas Aquinas calls the divine laws. That is, the laws, the systems of law were given to them by divine revelation. Now, all three Abrahamic faiths go all the way back to Abraham, which is why it's called the Abrahamic faiths, where they believe, we believe, that God gave Abraham a set of divine laws. Now, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity both walk those out in very different and, and nuanced, uh, nuanced and non-nuanced levels. Now, most of the laws are immutable these laws of morality that are, are measuring rods for each person, and they will be judged, each person will be judged by these laws regardless. But there are laws that 
really, as far as in a court of law on this earth, you can't be judged by. For, for instance, in Christianity, we have these higher laws or higher callings that go beyond baseline morality, go beyond uh, do not steal or do not murder. So do not steal and do not mur- murder, that can be judged in a court of law. But we've been given a, a higher law to follow, which is do not hate. Because if you hate, well, then you're liable. It's, it's the same as murder. Well, you can't go to a court on this earth and accuse someone of hate and just, well, that person hates me in their heart and therefore they need to go to prison. I mean, how, how is the court going to put you in jail for hatred that you have in your heart? Or the same, same goes, do not envy. It's a, a, a sin of the heart. Well, can a government legislate that? Can they, can they go and search through every photo that you liked on Instagram and say, aha, you were jealous and envious, and therefore you have to go to prison? No. So there are moral codes that we are called to follow in varying faiths that cannot be legislated. Right? You can't legislate that. And the same way, governments can't legislate everything about your life. For instance, it's soda and sugar is bad for you. Should the government be able to step in and control exactly what you eat? Should we have dietary plans set to each and every one of our doors? Or do we have freedom to make bad choices for our life? Do we have freedom? To eat one piece of candy, because that's bad for you, or one too many pieces of candy? Or does the collective have the ability to step in? Well, this is really the the questions that we are grappling with, with right now across the globe in these culture wars. Is it an individual's agency to walk that out? Or is it a group's agency to enforce their beliefs upon you. And we're seeing this when it, when it comes to the sexual, sexual morality and the, the attack of the, the family normative, what we'd consider normative family values. We're seeing that in the attack of, of private property and you being able to keep what you earn. We see that in mandating of vaccines where governments are beginning to mandate vaccines. So what are, what are the moral arguments? What are the, the positionings that you and I are going to take between a collectivist viewpoint where we are all agents of the state or an individualist viewpoint where the state is the agent of the individual? Now, here's the, here's the kicker, the thing that really gets me. It's as we move away, as society moves away from the belief of divine laws, as Thomas Aquinas would say, when we move away from the belief that there is a, a creator God who revealed what is the best form of society, when we move away from that into post-faith or human secular or cosmic secular worldviews, the foundations that have been built into modern society, modern civilization from centuries past, all of a sudden begin to erode because our politics follow the culture. The culture and the, the community standards and norms that we are in, those are the, the things that dictate 
what our policy and our politics is. So as culture shifts and changes, it erodes the laws of the land for better or for worse. Because sometimes as culture shifts, it actually improves the laws of the land and we can have arguments for both. Now, here's an argument when, when it comes to this whole trans movement, when it comes to the things that we're talking about of the, the erosion and the attack of normative family values. The progressive argument is that what we call quote unquote normative family values is one mom, one dad, stay married, have babies. This is the healthiest for children. That standpoint, that belief, they, the progressivism argues that that is a result of colonialism and Judeo-Christian moral values and ethics. And for most of history, these have not been the norms. And they're absolutely correct. For most of history, one mom, one dad, have kids, stay married as, as a standard. Obviously not one that is upheld very well across the globe, but as a cultural standard, an ideal to live for. That has not been the norm for most of history. In fact, that was only introduced really into mainstream culture about seven or 800 years ago in the 13th century when the Rome, the Roman Empire fell and Christianity became the, the state religion of Constantinople. And that then began to form and shape civilization around these normative what are now what we would consider normative family values. Before that, in Roman and Greek societies, women had no rights. They had no rights. And I bring that up because this is where we're going today. This is the direction that progressivism is on. Is Socrates famously argued that women should you know, this was the progressive idea of their day, that women should be able to be educated with the men. Hand clap to Socrates, uh, except he goes on to say, yeah, they should do so without any clothes on with the men, and they should be the common property of all men. And it's, in other words, you know, each man is being able to share that woman, just as the teacher would have relations with his pupils. Essentially saying her body is not her own and they're all going to sexually share in her body and in each other's body. This was, this was the idea of, of, of Greek society. Women were, had no rights. Same with, with Roman society. They write that in Roman society, it was not enough that a wife merely regulated her sexual behavior. This is from Wikipedia. It is required that she was virtuous in all areas. This is where we get kissing on the cheek from. When a husband would come home in Roman society, they would kiss on the cheek to make sure that they didn't smell alcohol on her breath because they believed that if a woman even had one sip of wine, that instantly she would become promiscuous and have an affair on the husband and then the wife would be put to death if the husband would smell wine or alcohol on his wife's breath, breath, while at the same time, men were able to have live-in mistresses. Men were able to be promiscuous and, and, and sleep around. That was of no consequence. They even say that 
men were able to have pedophilia relationships and sex with young boys, and that was of little consequence. This is Roman society. And yet Christianity sought to establish standards, equal standards, equal sexual standards for both men and women, whether young or old or slave or free. They had a standard that was equally applied to all people. But that standard is being attacked right now. That standard that it took many centuries for to give the liberties, the rightful liberties to women that we see today. But it was from that foundation, from that foundation that both men and women have equal, equal rights within a marriage. That ideal led to women rights and freedom. It goes on in this article on Wikipedia, it says Athenian women were legally classified as children regardless of their age and legal property of some men at all stages of her life. Women in the Roman Empire had le limited legal rights and could not enter professions. Female infanticide and abortion were participated by all classes. In family life, men could have lovers, prostitutes, or concubines, and wives who engaged in extramarital affairs were considered guilty of adultery and be put to death. It was not rare for pagan women to be married before the age of purity and then forced to consummate that marriage with her much often older husband. Husbands could divorce their wives at any time simply by telling the wife to leave, and wives did not have a similar ability to divorce their husbands. And yet, what we see as normative relations, normative family values, was argued by the early church fathers who advocated against polygamy, against abortion, against infanticide, against child abuse, and against homosexuality and transvestitism and incest. These were all, these normative family values that, that we think are normative are actually quite new to society. But progressivism does not want to see these be the norm anymore. They want to go back to that Hellenistic, to that Greek and Roman way of thinking. Because after all, love is love, right? Love is love. If you love someone, no matter who they are, and it's consensual, no matter what your age, then it is okay. This is not, this is not a slippery slope argument. This is not one thing leads to another. This is the worldview that is being pushed on in society right now across the globe. It is a worldview that is rejecting these norms that have built up civilization over the last 700 years to move back to a time where, and it's really what we're seeing in the trans movement, where the, the erosion of women's rights, where, where it's saying, if you want to be woman of the year, well, then you need to be a man who calls himself a woman. That is what wins you woman of the year. If you want to be a, a woman athlete, well, it's best that you were a man that became a woman because then, you know, you have an advantage. That's what we're seeing in this trans movement where it's actually an attack against women's rights. And the same, the same way, we're seeing a bunch of girls becoming men. It's, it's, as, it's as if the argument that is being made is that the best woman 
is really a man. And that the man is a supreme ideal, an idea that I ab- ab- abhorred and reject, I think is ugly. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. In a post-truth society where we have exchanged truth for lies and reason for postmodern irrationality, the absurd finally makes sense. Well, we have a, a new, all-inclusive, at least for this month, maybe next week, pride flag. A new inclusive pride flag that includes, uh, before, if you guys and girls remember, the pride flag was just a, a nice rainbow. And then we added... Um, transgendered colors of a white, pink, and blue triangle. And then, oh, we forgot out people of color. I don't know about people of non-color, um, you know, but they're the oppressors, so they don't matter. But so, so then we added a light brown and a dark brown stripe to represent people of color. And now the new one, which is, just seems everything is getting overlaid on this rainbow flag, is a red umbrella, which represents sex workers, global sex work, sex, sex workers to raise awareness about abuse among sex workers. And so I'm split on this. One, I'm glad that people are raising awareness of abuse, but what's happening here, it's not the raising of abuse and saying, we need to, we need to stop this. We need to help these women, most of them, who come from trafficking across the globe, when you look at the sex work as a global industry, not just in small pockets of, of Europe or America or, Am- or in Vegas and Amsterdam, where it's women who are willfully and wantingly going into these professions, but most of them are, are victims of human trafficking. But when you're throwing this red umbrella onto the flag, you're again, you're, you're embracing another form of, in my, in my view, making a woman just a piece of property, a piece of property for exchange to be bought and sold, going back to that Hellenistic worldview. But at the same time, as I said, most, most women in trafficking are not there by choice, some, some of the, the, the stats are shocking. And what's sad to me about this uh, umbrella, it's not calling for the liberation, the freedom of women from trafficking. It is the liberation of women to practice sex work, just hopefully without being abused by a man. But if a man is going and buying sex work, sex work then uh, I... I you know, that's, you've gotten to a pretty, pretty low place as it is. Well, here are some stats on human trafficking across the globe. Every 30 seconds, an, another person is trafficked. 40.3 million people across the globe are currently in trafficking, some form of human trafficking, whether it's sex trafficking or labor trafficking. 71% of the people who are trafficked are females, 25% are children, and less than 1% are ever rescued. Trafficking represents a, generates $150 billion in profit, and $99 billion of that 
comes from commercial sexual exploitation. $99 billion out of the $150 billion is sexual exploitation. Why? Why on this flag are we seeing the, the, the further promotion of the sexual exploitation of women? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we're, we, must, we must throw away these Christian Judeo values that are based on divine revelation, that are based on Abrahamic worldviews. We must throw that away and liberate ourselves back to the ways of the Greeks and the Romans, back to the ways of Marx and Engels, which says that, well, every person should be free to make love with every other person, that there is no such thing as right and wrong, morality and guilt or innocence. It is all just power. And if it's all just power, then, hey, we should let these people and we should support and celebrate the, the trafficking of women because this is the way that women can empower themselves when really it is further propagating of human slavery. Well, this show is brought to you by viewers like you. And I'm assuming that if you're listening to this show, you're getting value out of this show. So I would ask to, if you'd like to, to support the show in the same value that you get out of the show. Thousands of people turn to the show every month to help inform them and us against the assignments that are being propped up against us to destroy our lives, to destroy our, our purpose and our destiny. You can make a contribution to the show to keep the show alive and well and to improve it and to reach more people by visiting lucasscrobot.com where you can give your hard, cold fiat or you can visit uh, newpodcastapps.com and find a podcasting 2.0 certified app like Podfriend, Freeze, or Sphinx or Podstation where you can stream Bitcoin as you listen. And I like listening to my podcast that way because I can boost, I can add a couple more cents per minute as I listen as a way to support independent creators in the midst of me listening. Well, don't go away. We'll be right back with our short closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. Well, last week, I lost my wallet. I mean, I really lost it. I this, this story has context, believe me. I went to the gas station Monday afternoon. I came, used my wallet, came straight home, and the next day when I went out, I could not find it. Over the next three or four days, I searched high and low for hours and hours. I probably spent 10 to 12 hours looking for my wallet. I ripped apart the car. I tore up carpets and be, you know, in the most absurd places I looked there because, you know, we have four kids and uh, sometimes our kids will take stuff and, you know, our, our almost two-year-old will find something and take it and hide it somewhere. So we're, we're looking in every single place possible. And I'm sure it's in the house somewhere. 
but I can not find it. I was about to give up hope when finally I rephrased the question that I was asking. Instead of, where is my wallet? I thought, okay, well, the likelihood of my youngest child taking my wallet and stashing it somewhere is probably greater than my absent-mindedness of just setting it at, on some obscure shelf in the kitchen, which I've already searched 10 times. So instead of searching my shelf again for the 11th time or under carpets or in drawers in my office, which I've emptied out, maybe I should reframe the question that I'm asking. And instead of asking, where is my wallet? I should ask, if my child took my wallet, where would he hide it? So I approached my kids and I said, hey, to my two oldest, I said, hey, I have a riddle for you. Whoever cracks this riddle wins a prize. If our youngest would steal something, where would he stash it? And within 15 seconds, one of my kids, light bulb comes on in his, in his mind. He runs upstairs and 10 seconds later, he is back downstairs with my wallet. After hours and hours and hours of searching over the course of days, within a moment, because I asked the right question, he found my wallet. Well, today's quote comes from Eugene Onesco, who is a Roman was a Roman French playwright who was considered the avant-garde of theater in the 20th century, uh, famous for the anti-play and for coming up with the theater of the absurd. The theater of the absurd is a term in theater in plays that represents uh, plays that are focused on existential ideas and ideologies uh, where the human existence lacks meaning there's communication breakdowns, and in large, those plays in the theater of the absurd are cyclical, where they end in the same place that they start. Well, he was born in 1909 and died in 94, and he wrote this. He said, it is not the answer that enlightens, but the question. And I found that it's true. This week after Searching for the answer, the answer, the answer, I changed the question. I stopped my path of insanity looking and looking and searching for the answer. And, and I said, okay, maybe I'm asking the wrong question. And that has happened over the evolution of the show. We started years ago looking, looking for an answer, questioning and, and talking about purpose. And I realized that we were asking the wrong question. And instead, when we began to reframe, I feel, when we began to reframe from, from looking at ourselves and saying, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? What is my purpose? And we shifted to how do we view the world and how do I act and live in the world? That it changes the, the very path that we are on from something that is self focused to something that is other focused from something that is is narcissistic in nature that we always doubt to something that we can look at someone else across the table and realize I have purpose because I'm able to serve you I'm able to serve 
people around you because I have a right way of viewing the world. And so that is our role, to ask better questions, not to continually ask questions, not to never get an answer, but when we ask the right questions, we come up with answers that actually are fruitful and productive. So if you want to get more value out of this show, ask better questions and help your community around you ask better questions because it is through the asking of questions and through the sharing of this episode with other people so that you can dialogue and talk. You can then build a framework. You can build the bricks on your walls and strong gates to defend against ideas and pathogens that might come to try to destroy you. Thanks for listening. See you next time.